1: Welcome to Ashland University's Professional Learning Podcast. This is your host, Dr. David Silverberg. Joining us today is Greg Easterbrook. Greg is the author of It's Better Than It Looks Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear. Greg is the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Progress Paradox. He has been a staff writer, national correspondent, or contributing editor of the Atlantic for nearly 40 years. He's written for The New Yorker, Science, Wired, Harvard Business Review, The Washington Monthly, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Los Angeles Times. It's Better Than It Looks is recommended by The New York Times, Book Review, The Wall Street Journal, and Bill Gates. Welcome.
0: Hi, glad to be here,
1: David. Well, we really appreciate your time and would love to hear your insights about why educational leaders should be optimistic during this time.
0: Sure, I'll start you with an anecdote. A couple of years ago, I had health scare, and I had three kids and one of them, my daughter said to me, dad, what do you think your obituary would say? That's a great question to have to think about, isn't it? And I said, I think what it will say is that the aspect of my career that made people angry is that I'm an optimist. We live in a world where you're expected to be upset and frightened and anxious all the time. And if you're none of these things, if you're optimistic, I think there must be something wrong with you. What's the matter with you? Why don't? Why aren't you upset all the time? And I'll, I'll start by by saying it's important to draw a distinction both between optimism and pessimism, and between what my book, it's better than it looks, says and what people think it says. Uh, I've heard from many people about my book. People who haven't actually read it and of course any educator should know that we also live in a world where people have extremely strong opinions about books that they have never read so in my case people say how can you say that everything in the world is totally fine and of course I don't say that the world is full of problems there are many very serious problems in our world there are many very serious more problems that are coming in fact and it's better than a book's I devote three full chapters to what should we do about some of the serious problems of our life. But I, I also think that in general, if you look at the historical record, over time, most things get better for most people. Each generation lives somewhat better than the previous generation. We can expect this to continue. That's, that, that's kind of I've just summarized the whole book for you. But beyond that, there's the basic question of optimism versus pessimism. People say, well, if you're an optimist, you must be a Pollyanna. You're blind to everything that's happening. No, it's the other way around. Optimists are people, they don't deny that there are problems. They believe that problems can be solved. An optimist thinks if you've got a problem, whether it's in your school, in your county, in your public health system, whatever it is, you can solve that problem. Pessimists think that you can't solve problems. And that's why, historically, optimists have been of far greater value to society than pessimists have. Wow. Well, you have covered
1: that book in a few sentences, and there are so many nuances, obviously, that are hard to do in a few sentences. Uh, You really break it down historically because I understand about what you're saying about that knee-jerk reaction to optimism versus pessimism, and there are so many challenges. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of optimism besting pessimism? Uh, As you refer to in your book, you say optimism almost always beats pessimism. So I'm quoting you there. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, if you look at the record of history, and one of the things I do, and it's better than it looks, is I start off by... Clobbering the reader with statistics showing how not every single thing, but most things are getting better, and most things have been getting better for many generations. Uh, and then I try to figure out, well, why did that happen? It wasn't just random chance. Good news didn't come down from the sky. Why did why do things get better? And I find a few general themes, and I try to apply them to current problems. The two most prominent ones, when I was finishing this book in 2017, are inequality and climate change—very serious problems that didn't require a lot of work. Now, now we've got a virus epidemic, uh, a third very serious problem. Uh, but if you look at the past, at moments in the past when really serious problems reared their ugly heads, and you compare what did optimists say we should do, what did pessimists say that we should do, in almost every case for hundreds of years the optimist turned out to be right. And a classic example, and one if you've got any, if you have any audience in California, I would point out is you look two generations ago, at the level of air pollution, especially, there's several kinds of air pollution, but especially smog increasing in California. It looked like by now California would be uninhabitable. And in fact, this was actually predicted by scientists that California would literally be uninhabitable and have to be depopulated, that the borders would have to be sealed so that no one would go in there and inhale the poison gas. And now, this year is the sixth consecutive year that Los Angeles has not had a stage one ozone alert. Smog has been not eliminated, but almost eliminated from Southern California air. The air there is clear. Acid rain and other kinds of pollution have also been reduced pretty sharply. And if you look at what was, we can give many examples, but I'll stop with that one. If you look at what was said analytically by optimists versus pessimists about Southern California air pollution starting roughly in the 1960s, the optimists are right about everything, and the pessimists were wrong about everything. And when, when we look at the current world, whether it's COVID or race relations or political partisanship, a, a lot of problems that bother us, we tend to side with the pessimists and believe negativism. Even though the pessimists are not sometimes wrong, they're always wrong. And yet they're, they're the people that we believe.
1: And I think that, you know, for our Audience and these are action-oriented people, obviously, uh, superintendents, principals, and the like. Um, they want to make a difference. I think a big takeaway for me from your book is it's about those people who take action, the optimists who, who, uh, as you say, the arrow of history points forever upward or, or along those lines. The bow that propels the arrow of history is optimism, right? I'm paraphrasing you there. So, um, absolutely. So. Um, Tell us a little bit more about why action matters with optimists.
0: Well, it's another basic difference between optimism and pessimism. An optimist says problems can be fixed, but they're not going to be fixed by magic. You have to do something about it. You've got to roll up your sleeves and get to work. In the case to finish up that example of why smog went down so much in Southern California, it didn't happen. The climate didn't decide to be clear. It wasn't magic. It was that Numerous very strict regulations were enacted. Tailpipe standards on cars, any maker model of car that you buy today, emits about one half of 1% as any maker model of car in the 1960s. Very strict regulation of the use of coal at power plants. Southern California power plants have all but stopped using coal to generate electricity. Uh, very strict rules about other types of pollutants and profit incentive created Rewards are always more effective than punishment. Any of your listeners who are involved in school administration know that. Rewards work so much better than punishment. Rewards were created for people to invent things, say the three-stage catalytic converter, that you could make money with by reducing pollution. So that's that's how things worked in that instance. In, in other great social problems of our times, you, you look at the improvement of the healthcare system, the reduction of... Criminal violence, right now at this moment, everyone's freaked out about not just the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but the sense that the police are out of control, that violence is out of control, that the streets have become dangerous. Right now, you're so much safer on the streets than you were 30 and 40 years ago. Criminal, basically all kinds of violence are in decline in the world. That's a larger topic, but violence by criminals, violence by police and violence by soldiers are all have all been declining all, almost everywhere in the world for 30 to 40 years, depending on where you go in the world. And that didn't happen by magic. That happened because specific reforms were enacted. There are different reforms in different cases for different subjects. But the reason it happened is reform. And then I, I wind up, it's better than it looks. You, you have that great quote about the optimism is the bow that propels. The arrow of history, that's a play on something that FDR once said. We look at our world today. What do we need? We need a lot of things. We need a lot of improvement. Reforms will work. The past shows us that reforms will work. So you shouldn't be afraid of reforms because the odds are they're going to work.
1: Yeah, and you mention about reforms. I know that they can be uncomfortable as far as change, but in, in your book you say, consider that nearly every important reform of the past century seems wise and cost-effective in retrospect, and you refer to education as well, and then people come out of that saying, hey, why didn't we do that sooner? Uh, <laughs> that's the lesson of history in every incident. So it sounds like you're really applauding reform as being um, the, the lever that can make real change on a lot of issues you're describing today.
0: Oh, absolutely, across a broad range of issues, whether it's environment, health care, uh, improvement of policing, improvement of international relations, wars in decline, not just because of good luck, but because of various reforms. And in every case, when reforms were proposed, a lot of people said, that'll be so expensive. We can never do that. And now when we look back at them in retrospect, we say, hey, why do we do that sooner? In, in almost not every single case, I wish I could say every case, but in most cases, reforms turn out to cost less than initially estimated. They turn out to work faster. And initially, today, today, for example, policing very much in the news as we do this interview, people say, oh, it would take years, decades, centuries to reform the police. I think you're going to find out that any well-run police department is going to be reformed amazingly fast as long as reforms are put into place, because that is the lesson of reforms. Uh, People say reforms will never work. People say they'll be too expensive. And they look at the past and say, wow, why didn't we do that sooner? The reforms are going to do today, including on climate change, 25 years from now, People say, why didn't they do that sooner? Well, this may be
1: very good news for school administrators that are obviously, as you know, going through some major challenges right now and reforms related to that uh, for the short and maybe the long term as well. Uh, Tell me this. Why do you feel like more people aren't optimistic why do you feel like people may lean into pessimism in certain situations
0: uh there there's a larger historical reason and then there's the reason that i think is specific to our generation right now if you look at the larger historical picture people have always been pessimistic and whether this is i'm religious myself but whether this comes from religious teaching about an end of days looming over us maybe that gets in our psychology so far so somehow but you go back you go all the way back at least to plato and plato is roughly the time when good written records begin people were pessimistic in plato's age plato thought the world was ending that was 2600 years ago plato thought that he was among the last generations of people who would see the world crumble before their eyes you go back a couple hundred years into american history even before the american revolution the famous New England revivalist Cotton Mather would give speeches 300 years ago about how America was collapsing. Everything was about to fail. Among other amusing things, Cotton Mather said that America was about to run out of resources. And today we use resources at what a million times the level that they were used. And Cotton Mather said that that's a guess, but I bet you that's actually a conservative guess. And practically everything's in oversupply. So people have thought that a disaster is coming. For centuries, Now, the fact that people have thought a disaster is coming and it hasn't come, uh, I wish that was a guarantee that the disaster would never come. It's not. There still could be some sort of horrifying collapse, This is the people who believe this for many centuries. Now, when you think about our specific moment, your generation and mine, our generation was raised to believe specifically in a couple of disasters that were about to happen. Nuclear Armageddon, which is unbelievable just unimaginably horrible in every way, and environmental collapse and overpopulation of the earth. We were taught in school that all three of these things were looming, they were just about to happen, and that it would be the end of us. None of them has happened, I don't think any of them are going to happen, but we were taught to expect that. So we've been grown, we've grown up with this psychology, and I would criticize educators partly for this, of constantly being on guard against the horrifying collapse. And when I find it very weird, think about our popular entertainment. Popular entertainment is full of doomsday scenarios. The Hunger Games, one of the most popular book and movie series of all time, is about a future in which there's no food and everybody's miserable. There are many popular entertainment, the best, the most popular television show of the last 10 years, The Walking Dead is about a society in which 99% of humanity is dead. Why do people find this entertaining? I have no idea why this is considered entertaining. But it it is what we've been conditioned to accept. So we, we, we have come into our point in the world expecting something horrible to happen. And Donald Trump being president makes us a little bit worse. But I think our feelings right now would be the same, even if Hillary Clinton or any of the other major... Candidates of 2016, if they'd been elected, we'd still feel this way. We feel like the COVID virus, this is it. This is what we were told to expect. It's finally happening. And I think that's deeply seated in our mindset. And it's something we have to actively fight against.
1: So is part of my hearing on that, that part of my listening, that educational leaders can help model a more optimistic disposition for the future. And well, does this I, time give that opportunity to 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 be that arrow that points in the right direction.
0: Well, you should you should just be realistic about the past. Every every in the past, as we said earlier, in the past, optimism almost always beat pessimism. It, it, everybody knows that in the history of education, including in the recent history, twenty, maybe thirty, maybe forty years ago, the bad aspects of the America were whitewashed by the educational system. Everybody knows that. You can't dispute that. There was a lot of whitewashing going on, and it's good that there isn't anymore. But now I should think of a clever term for this, I haven't thought of one. It's now gone in the opposite direction, where the only thing educators want to talk about is things that have failed, things that are bad, things that express sexism or racism or some other contemptuous thought, as if nothing good had happened. I would say that the environment, excuse me, the educational system needs to struggle to balance those things. Bad from the past, good from the past, what do these things teach us about the best moves to make today? Mm -hmm. Very helpful. Very helpful. Okay.
1: So any final words here? I I know that you come from a family of educators. I think your mother was a school teacher, right? And uh, so kind of hearkening back and celebrating education here, what would you like to say to educational leaders uh, across Ohio and beyond as we try and forge a a better future?
0: Well, people give lip service to education. Oh, education is so important. They really believe that I think education really is that important. And, and one's own family is just a small slice of the picture. But my mother was a public school teacher in Buffalo, New York. She inculcated very strong pro-education values into my family. I have, I have two brothers. Both my brothers became college professors. I'm not competent to be a college professor. So I'm the black sheep in the family. I'm a writer. Uh, but even if your children don't become college professors, still to, to put education as an important objective in each person's life is good for society. I, you, you remember, you, uh, since you've, since you've read it, it's better than it looks, you know that I spend three or four pages on it. If you had to choose the single best thing about the United States, it's not our protection by oceans. It's not our natural resources. It's the fact that we've got more great colleges than all other countries in the world. And yeah, there's a lot of silly, politically correct stuff going on at colleges now, but I would still much rather have the American college system and the American public education system than the systems of any other country in the world. They're one reason that we're so well off. They're one reason that we're free and strong and I think a fair and basically decent country. The schools have taught us those values. So to any, any school teachers or school administrators, if you have that moment of loss of faith, don't give up.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. We really appreciate that.
0: Happy to be here, David. Brought to you
1: by Ashland University, your partner in the future of professional learning. This podcast is intended to cultivate a rich debate. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Ashland University.